Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. This is the first in a series of podcasts focusing on a specific area of English instruction. In this episode, I'm talking to David Dardow about how to construct a knowledge-rich curriculum. David has authored numerous books on a wide range of school topics, including literacy, accountability and psychology. But his most recent publication, Making Meaning in English, is the one that I was most keen to question him on. The book's ideas and further reading recommendations have fundamentally altered the way I see the subject moving forwards. And as such, it was a pleasure to have David on to discuss aspects of it in more detail. We cover the best book David's ever read, taught or been taught his reaction to the assertion from some teachers who claim that they are already applying curriculum guidance that has come about in the past few years, texts he has included in the Key Stage 3 curriculum as part of his role in a lead practitioner's team for English, how ambitious David thinks we can be in the younger years in terms of book choice and whether the only thing limiting our aspirations is age-appropriate content, the thought process behind his choice of disciplinary lenses in the book, the way in which these six disciplinary lenses can be structured or layered to ensure that they have the desired effect, and finally, what this looks like in a spiral curriculum across Key Stage 3. A massive thanks again to David for offering up some time to discuss the book. If you haven't read it already, then I strongly suggest you do, particularly if you're in a position requiring curriculum design and or review. If you'd like to be made aware of when more education chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Um, all right, David. So um, nice, easy one for you to start with. What is the best book you've ever read, taught or been taught while you were at school? So I think there are different answers to each of those components to that question. Best books I've ever read. Uh, I've read. I made. I've made a bit of a habit of rereading War and Peace um, every few years, and I've read four different translations now, and they're all they're all surprisingly different. Uh, there are you know there are some that I prefer to others. Uh, I think another great book that I reread um, every few years is Middlemarch. Uh, mm. Love love it. Um, I think it's again. I learn something new about the book and about myself each time I read it. Um, one that uh, maybe one of my maybe my favourite book that I read last summer uh, was um, "A Dance to the Music of Time" by Anthony Pohl, which was just absolutely astonished me. It's a, it's a twelve volume um, novel. Uh, well, it's twelve 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 novels, and they were written over a twenty five year period. And they they're all narrated by the same character, and the same sort of rotating cast of characters crops up, and it takes you from the 1920s to the 1970s, and it's it I think the most remarkable thing maybe I've ever read, um, and I'm in the process now of I've added that to my reread pile, so mm. um, I've 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 done the I've reread the first three volumes of that, and uh, I'm looking forward to the to the fourth. <laughs> Um, in terms of the best book I've taught, um, I suppose may, maybe maybe the maybe the favourite thing I've I've ever taught um, is 
Simon Armitage's translation of the Odyssey. It's a it's a it's written as a play, and uh, it's it's very earthy and funny, and it just brings this ancient story to life in a way that kids really respond to and really enjoy. Uh, there are you have to be careful. There are two f bombs in it that you have to sort of you know make a decision about early on. Uh, but other than that, it's uh, it's 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 a joy. I really I've loved teaching that. Um, so definitely that would be up there. Uh, maybe the best book I was taught when I was at school, or the one that had the profoundest impact on me, might be Thomas Hardy's Mayor of Casterbridge, um, which I did for for GCSE back in day. And uh, yeah, no, it really really stuck with me. So I don't know. That's a complete answer. Mm. Some lovely answers as well. I'm I'm in in the market at the moment actually for a key stage three play to teach uh, to the year eight. So maybe I'll look into that um um the the, the Odyssey kind of uh, retelling by Armitage. Yeah. Um. So you you've kind of um written uh, what for some people is like one of the most important books arguably in English teaching in recent years with regard to like making meaning in English um that book uh, and maybe more broadly in terms of like Mary Myatt and, and Christine Council we've got lots of people who are talking about curriculum at the moment there's a lot of rich discussion and and, and things that we can read and listen to with regard to curriculum instruction um how, how do you react to the assertion from some teachers who claim that uh, when they come into contact with this body of work, um, either directly or indirectly, that they are or were doing it already with regard to the curriculum guidance or research that has come about in the last few years? Well, maybe they were. Um, I don't think they were. In, <laughs> they certainly weren't in the majority. I, I mm. When I think back, on my own uh, teaching um, when, I, when I first started out. When I first started out, uh, like many young English teachers, uh, I had my first job and they just said, have a look in the stock cupboard and see what you fancy teaching. And it was a mixture of, you know, there were, we, had some, we had some young adult novels like, uh, like Holes and um, uh, Skellig and um, things like that. And, and there were some dusty old copies of Kez and, you know, Kestrel for a <laughs> Uh, and and there were you know and there were the classics and the things like um, I can't remember any off the top of my head now but but those were my choices and I and I gravitated to what, what looked easiest because I thought that would give me the easiest life uh, so apart from GCSE specification that's kind of what I did um, and and as I you know as I as I became more experienced uh, and particularly you know the process of of, of you know just becoming older and and becoming a father and things like that and just really thinking about the choices that I wanted for my own children it just became increasingly obvious that were anybody else teaching that stuff to my kids I'd be I'd be a little bit disappointed and 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 so the argument that sort of crystallized in my mind was that if if it's not good enough for my kids it can't be good enough for anyone else's and uh, I'd never you know I'm, I'm sure there were lots and lots of people having that discussion and, and thinking that thought, but never in my, um, you know, surroundings, never, it was never a discussion I was part of. And then, so this had been going on, you know, for a while as it, as it does, but ma mainly sort of in isolation. And then, 
sort of when I joined, t- started taking part in Twitter and started blogging in around 2011, 2012, and I started to encounter people who had who had different opinions and different ideas and, and started this kind of discussion. And it's been, you know, it's that started to have a real impact on me uh, and the way I thought about these things. And, you know, I've worked over, over the last 10 years or so, I've worked in hundreds of different schools and with thousands of different teachers. And, you know, there are, there are definitely some who were, were were aware of really high level discussions and 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 theories around all this stuff for all of that time, but the vast majority of teachers and uh, you know I'm talking about English teachers here, you know when I when 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 they when they're introduced to this way of thinking, it's it's really new and it's it's surprising and uh, I think you know maybe over the last five years or so, it's become increasingly common to talk in using fra- you know using phrases like like um substantive knowledge or or uh, you know um powerful knowledge or cultural literacy you know these things have become uh, a cornerstone of cpd over the last few years and so you know it, it's become increasingly common that that teachers are equipped to have really interesting discussions about the curriculum but um you know definitely that's in my experience that's that's new so it doesn't really matter what a few individuals are doing they certainly weren't sharing it in a useful way and uh and that's where we are now i think mm. you uh in in regards to like sort of your curriculum or a curriculum that you have a hand in contributing to um your one of the lead practitioners uh, like Ormiston Academies Trust, uh, obviously for English. Um, and uh, on a recent podcast that you did a few weeks ago, a few months ago, you mentioned that you cover uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God and Brave New World. I can't remember if they were covered as part of the English curriculum or one of them might have been part of a form tutor kind of collective reading curriculum. But um what other books have you included in the curriculum within Ormiston Academy's Trust and, and why have you chosen them? Okay, well, I should say that um, Ormiston is, as a trust, is, is like, if you can imagine the polar opposite to a trust like Harris or Ark, uh, yeah. where, where decisions are very centralised. Um, the, the, the academies in our trust pretty much you know, to a large degree do what they want so uh we've got um 32 different uh, secondary academies in the trust and 32 different curricular models uh-huh. and um so one of the things that i was tasked with when i started at eight uh, as we like to call ourselves um one it was to you know we for instance we've got we've got seven or eight of our schools who use art mastery um a curriculum and and they, that that's been going for the last three or four years and mainly because at the time you know when the discussions particularly prompted by Ofsted were were, were centering on the curriculum we became aware um in the trusts before my time that um that we didn't have anything to offer and so we suggested to some schools that they do that and and so part of my brief is to is to produce something that's at least as good as that, if not better. I'd like to, 
argue that it's better, um, uh, which we can provide to our academies for free rather than, than paying uh, thousands of pounds for somebody else's stuff, which, you know, I'm not... I'm not here to criticise or anything like that, but as a principle, that seemed to be pretty sound. So I've been in the. So I started at Oat in January last year and uh, have been working with. I've got a team of four regional lead practitioners who that we that that, that we work together and we've we've talked together and uh, and 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 arrived at um, our our vision of a of a key stage free English curriculum, which is being taught at one of our schools this year. So they're sort of piloting for us. They they mm-hmm. they wanted to make a change and they're and they're and they're doing what we've planned. And it's really quite exciting because they're, you know, they're they're just being able to feed back to us, you know, more of this, less of that, this bit, you know, didn't work as well as that bit. And so we're learning a huge amount through that process, which is feeding in and uh, to what we're what we're doing. So anyway, to get back to the your question about um, texts, mm. I mean, one of the things I'd want to say here is that text choice, the, the curriculum content in terms of of texts, is is really really important in in as much as it's the experience that you've curated for students that you want them to have. But at another level, that experience is is a vehicle for teaching conceptual understandings. And so, you know, over the years, we've, like most of the discussion and, and debate in English teaching has been around what experiences children should have. And, and I get that, and, it's, and it matters, and it's, and it's hugely important to us. But if anyone sort of disagrees about my text choices, I don't really care. It's like, choo- choose your own and, f- and, and put up your, your arguments for why they're as good or better. Um, but the the real purposes of them is they have to carry a real conceptual understanding of what's going on, because you know the 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 real the real problem I think that we've had, especially at key stage three in English, is that you know at key stage four what we do makes sense. We're you know in literature we teach we kids are learning books, so they have to learn the plot and the characters and learn quotations and all of this stuff is meaningful, and it's not really meaningful at key stage three. We don't. We don't care about that stuff. And so the texts that we choose have to have other importance and other meaning. Uh, and so anyway, with that huge preamble, um, so we, <laughs> we start off in year seven with, um, with, the, with Homer's Odyssey, which I was just talking about. Um, and so that, that centred around a collection of, of texts looking at the ancient origins of literature. So there's lots of Greek mythology in there. And uh, and we also look at other versions of the Odyssey. So we, there's extracts from Emily Wilson's translation and all sorts of stuff like that, all mediated to be to meet Year Sevens where they're at. Um, and then in then they go on and look look at um, Beowulf and Segwain and uh, and looking at you know things like uh, the Arthurian legend and and legends from other parts of the world like Journey to the West which if you've never read Journey to the West it's absolutely corking it, you know, people might remember this as the monkey which was the 70s yeah. um adaptation of Journey to the West and it really is brilliant anyway um so that and then we go on and look at um, rhetoric through the lens of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and then we do um, some Chaucer, so we look at the Knight's Tale, and um, and in various other bits and bobs that that connect with that. So that's year 
seven. And then in year eight, we do a series of, of mini chronologies. So we start off looking at the sonnet form and how that, you know, how that changed from Petrarch to the 21st century. And then we do um, a, a scheme of work, which is, I find hugely exciting. It's, it's called the role of religion. And it's basically looking at uh, the Bible as being central to the development of language and literature. So it looks at mm. William Tyndale, uh, arguably the most important hidden figure in, in English. Uh, and so, and looking at the influence of the King James Bible on people like Milton and, and Bunyan, as well as, you know, going right up to Bob Marley, who was obsessed with the King James. And, and a lot of his songwriting was directly inspired by, uh, by the Bible. So we look at things like that. And then we, we move on to look at comedy through time. Um, that's centred around As You Like It, um, Shakespeare's play As You Like It, but it also it goes back to um, looking at some Aristophanes, um, Plautius, Terence, you know, a Greek and Roman um, comedian, mm. comedian. I'm not sure comedians is the right word, but comedic writers, uh, and then mm. like looking at a bit of restoration comedy, and then a bit of Oscar Wilde, a bit of modern comedy, and then and then we do the story of the novel, which is centred around um, you know a choice of text. So one of the options there is to look at Great Expectations, but there's there's other things in that mix. But it sort of starts off with. Um, Afro Ben's Orinoco as a as a proto text before looking at Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver and and Pamela and things like that, which which chart the development as the novel as a form of writing. Uh, so that's year eight, and uh, I don't know if this is the kind of level of detail that you wanted. No, this is fantastic. Yeah, uh, we we have a we we start on the Gothic centered around Wuthering Heights. Uh, and then we 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 do a um, a unit on war writing, which which is centred on uh, Sheriff's play Journey's End, as w- as well as lots of poetry. And then there's uh, another chronology, which is tra- tragedy through times. Again, starting with Sophocles, centering on Othello, and going right up to uh, Chinua Chabi's Things Fall Apart. And then we do um, attack. Uh, a unit which we call freedom, which which is where their eyes were watching God's sits, uh, and mm. that's contrasted with of mice and men, which is still very popular in Key Stage Three, and part of part of the impetus of 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 putting a text like um, Hurston's "Their Eyes Were Watching God" is to say, look, here's the same time period, uh, you know, in America, 1930s, but this is the experiences of a black woman written by a black woman instead of instead of Steinbeck's novel, which you know, when which is great, a great novel in all sorts of ways. But when people are using it to tick a diversity box, that sort of makes my eye twitch a little bit. I, mm. I get very uncomfortable with that as a kind of you know, teach it for all sorts of reasons. But if you're teaching it to 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 because you're, you know, you're hoping that in some way is being diverse. I think you're making a, a little bit of an error. Uh, and then we finish with this synoptic unit, which is a sort of retrospective going right back to the beginnings. And we, we've just called it Women in Literature, but it's just re-examining everything that, that's happened throughout the career through, you know, finding examples of women who have been at the forefront of each of these movements and making sure they're front and centre. Um, and then, and that the the text that holds that together is Charlotte Perkin Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, which is mm. a 
quite stunning uh, short story. Very, you know, very, very modern feeling uh, and a, a brilliant piece of writing. So that's our, so those are the texts, but all the way through, it's about how they carry the concepts that we want students to learn. But those are the experiences we want them to have. And we think, you know, that, for instance, you know, learning about Greek myth or learning about the Bible, learning about tragedy and comedy, that is going to have relevance for when students begin key stage four study. That's that's a that's a hugely wide basis, which you know is going to narrow to this to the point of GCSE. But I think that that mm. it, it prepares them in a in a quite an exciting way. That's that yeah, that's blown me away. The 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 kind of the I'm not sure what the words is here, probably like the ambition behind that kind of that um the 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 level of the literature, the amount of literature that that's coming so thick and fast. Um how many Shakespeare like two or three Shakespeare plays accounted then at least? And uh, yeah, and amongst so many other kind of like canonical texts. Um yeah, that that I mean it's I think it, it kind of it leads me on to my next question. But um you you in the past, I can't remember if it's in making meaning in English. I'm sure it is, or I've just heard you speak about it elsewhere, but you've often um you, you've talked about the fact that a good way to gauge whether or not a text belongs in the curriculum um is to consider whether or not a student might have come across that book or that text of their own volition, like through their own free reading or through their own exploration in, in the library. And it's such a good, um, it's such a good kind of guide as to make a decision with regards to like what we're choosing for the classroom and what we're not. And you've kind of answered my question already with regards to, um, with regards to like year seven, if we're laying down a foundation, what kind of texts um should we be putting in there you've obviously answered that already but to broaden the question a little bit is the only thing that limits choice at that age level um sort of age appropriate content can we aim as as high as possible in terms of ambitious text whatever that means i mean i think shakespeare might be as ambitious as it can get i suppose maybe paradise lost or Dante's Inferno, maybe it could be another kind of level up. But yeah, broadly speaking, are you only thinking about age appropriate content when it comes to key stage three instruction? Yeah, and that's that's really important. And so one of the examples that I've you know had presented to me in the past was um studying streetcar named desire in key stage three, which I think I think I wouldn't do that. I think that's a mistake. I think that's you know, it's just too rapey uh to <laughs> To, for, to want to, I think really to want to tackle it with that age group of students, and I really hate the idea of thinking about this is a GCSE text and that's an A level text and sort of classifying them in those terms. Um, I don't. I, th I think there's something very limiting about that. But and, and also, I think it's important to say that you can teach texts in age appropriate ways. So mm. you know. You could like, lots of um, children encounter um, Midsummer Night's Dream in primary school, and of course, none of them are looking at bestiality or, or you know, looking at the issues of consent with the love potion. Mm -hmm. I mean, that 
that's not something we do with them at primary school. Rightly so, you know, but if you were doing that at a, at a, with an older age group of students, you probably would be wanting to explore all those kinds of issues. And, and so I think that's, you know, that the, the, that's definitely has a place. But there are, you know, and we really, we really agonised over their eyes for watching God because, you know, doing it with year nine is, uh, I think, challenging. And although I don't think it's ever... It, and I don't think it ever crosses the line into being inappropriate for you know, 13, 14 year olds that it does uh, in the later parts of the novel. It does sort of talk about not explicitly, but but certainly the inferences, the implication is very, very clear that it's talking about uh, a sexual relationship in quite a mature way. And that needs careful mediation and handling. Um, it's not like you're going to c- come across anything shocking, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of graphic graphic nature or presentation or, or anything really explicit but it's it, it's quite mature ideas being discussed and so you know I think that and, and I think novels do that in a way which which you know drama uh, you know like Shakespeare and and it doesn't even though there are quite sort of mature you know very very mature themes discussed in all of Shakespeare's plays they're done in such a way that you can kind of access at different levels but novels with their sort of interiority and the way you get inside characters minds it's it's harder to draw back from things mm. that that are that are that, that are meeting you at that sort of level and so i do think you have to be really thoughtful and mindful about whether the experience that we're curating is is as you put it an appropriate one for the age that students are um mm-hmm. but you yeah. know coming back to the point you made about ambition or you know challenging texts i think a text is only as challenging as you make it so you know what you what we'd never do is go like here's here's an extract from chaucer off you crack and sort of re, you know read through that and do some analysis i mean that's guaranteed to fail so it's kind of a mediated experience where we'd show them uh, some Chaucer and we'd we kind of think about it, and then we'd we'd look at a more extended bit through Neville Coghill's uh, modern translation of that, which is, I think, in, for my money, the best. It's it kind of captures the the rhyme and the rhythm of it, even though it, it you know it definitely does lose a lot. Um, but it's but the accessibility, especially for year seven, make it a really appropriate choice. And then we look at, you know, for instance, Patience to Gabby's or some of some of her um, telling tales, which you know, not all of it, because it's a bit fruity at, at places, but particularly, you know, some of it and the Night's Tale is a good example. Some of it is is great. And it's kind of done in this kind of hip hop style. And, and it's showing, look, these ancient fuddy-duddy texts that are there gathering dusts in libraries, they, they're fresh and vibrant and they mean something to people at the cutting edge of literature today. And, uh, you know, that's I love those kinds of opportunities. Like, for instance, just as we were planning um, the scheme of work, which, which includes uh, Beowulf, uh, we started reading... Um, uh, the 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 new Headley translation, which has been billed as a feminist translation of of Beowulf, and it's and it's 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 just a brilliantly fresh take on the poem. You know, I've, like there was me thinking that you know Heaney's was complete. We didn't need any more, and her I think her translation is just wild, um, and 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 it definitely brings something really new and exciting 
to this thousand-year-old text. Uh, and I, I love opportunities like that. I think, yeah, the, the word opportunity is quite a... Um, yeah, that uh, it's it's the best one to use. I mean, often I think there's a sort of squeamishness about like holding up text that you plan to use at key stage three against the mandated ones in, in GCSE and thinking, well, this seems, you know, more ambitious than what the exam board's telling me to do. So surely we should be doing something that's a little bit more watered down, something that we can kind of build up towards these texts that have been um, sort of, uh, included in in the exam spec but what you've just described there in terms of that key stage three curriculum is far more ambitious than any kind of GCSE and maybe even you know a level IB um curriculum that I've ever heard of so yeah Except, that yeah. it's I mean people say you know it sounds like a like an undergraduate degree or something mm. and and like you're just getting the headlines the actual lessons are nothing like that. yeah yeah, they're really brought to the level. They're meeting children where they're at, and and hopefully, you know, getting them to think things that they couldn't otherwise think because they wouldn't have known about. But we do things like one of the big parts of it is what we what we're calling fluency lessons, where the the te- some of the texts that have been selected, uh, children just perform them, and and the teacher mm. will you know model. Uh, intonation and pacing and or say things like you know how did I you know what what emotion was I conveying there and how did I use emphasis to do that and then the kids will do like individual echoed readings of that or choral readings um, with you know the focus just being on enjoying it and they and often you know they love that stuff they're really buzzing after a fluency lesson they come out going oh that was you know fun <laughs> uh, it's, it's all about performance and so it's not dry old analysis um you know it's not it's not like gcse study it's not like it certainly isn't like a level or degree study or ib study it's 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 lessons for year sevens and year eights and year nines which are just using the these 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 really interesting texts as as points to to meet them and to take them places they wouldn't otherwise go if you do, I mean, if you do do it conceptually, as you were, as you were saying, like if that's the basis of the entire kind of key stage, then you can still make those um, connections. You can still kind of grasp that kind of intertextuality or, you know, illusions that are being made. I mean, it basically, if you've covered Shakespeare and the Bible, what percentage of kind of like English illusions really are left if you're going to study something later on, like. Um, yeah exactly we miss out the Aeneid for instance you know there's only so much you can do <laughs> yeah you know, not exactly. much going on there's a little couple of extracts from Ovid that we look at but you know you can you can do what you can do yeah um, um but it is giving children a diet that they wouldn't otherwise have you know, yeah if, if we don't give it to them they're not gonna they're not gonna encounter it Exactly right, and it sets them up um, perfectly for kind of study. I mean, not not just in English, but I, I'd imagine kind of in in a, a number of like the humanities or the arts or this kind of thing. Um, in terms of like coming back to making meaning in English, for anyone who hasn't um, read it yet, you break down what a knowledge rich curriculum looks like in English into six. Uh, sort of disciplinary lenses or six topics or six sort of um 
you know, chapters, what have you. Um, and from memory, uh, I hope I don't forget any here, but I think it was um, it was like metaphor, argument, um, pattern, plot, grammar, and context. And I, I watched the video that you did with the book launch, uh, and you mentioned you kind of made like a, a sort of a brief comment about how four of those disciplinary lenses you were set on and you had in your mind initially and it was only later with a a conversation with another teacher um that you decided to include two more um yeah what were what were the extra two that you added on at the end and why hadn't they made the initial cut yeah so okay so yeah so so uh the one that you call plot i call story because uh, it's Sorry, plot is yeah. no it's fine it's fine plots contained within story as a concept um and, and so basically they're boxes to put things in um and so you know metaphor is the box which contains the idea that the language all language is figurative and mm-hmm. uh, that we use um abstractions you know in order to talk about abstraction we we use concrete things in order to make sense of those things and uh, and that's the basis for the metaphor box. And then the story box has all of the stuff about narrative and 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 theme and character, all character. of that's put in there. And and arguments all about constructing sort of logical um, paths through things. And it's patterns contain structure and 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 sound and all sorts of stuff like that. And then so originally grammar in my mind was was went in the pattern box like grammar's a a pattern it has pattern to it and uh and it it was just too big to fit you know you needed to you needed a bit of room to breathe because there's so much to it and i um i visited so i've been working on this for a while and i visited phil stock school in um in london greenshaw high and uh and we'd been you know we were very much fellow travelers and have been sort of bouncing these ideas off each other for years, and uh, and they they were using they would you know you basically using the four um, metaphor story pattern and arguments. I'm not sure if they called them different things or not, but basically they, they were the same. And then they had grammar and context, and and I, grammar I got immediately. And I, we were having I was having discussions with Phil about you know is context a way of seeing English? Is it is it discreet enough or does it you know and and I guess the you know the decision that I came to I was convinced by Phil I didn't need that much convincing to be honest but I was convinced by him that it was useful to deal with it separately and so um you know I did (laughs) I see um um, so the you, you say quite um clearly in the book that they're not supposed to be seen as distinct um unit so to speak or distinct yeah. sort of you know we don't do metaphor in term one and, and pattern in term two so to speak but i think coming at it from my perspective um i was a head of department uh, and now kind of move schools and, and looking after the middle school um but i still have the opportunity to kind of change things as i as i see it which is lovely um, but Mike and what I was thinking about when I was uh, head of department was that, you know, it, it makes so much sense to me, all these different kind of disciplinary, le- disciplinary lenses, but the sort of the practicality of making changes and like managing up 
and explaining this to, you know, my line manager or, you know, the vice principal or whoever. Um, I sort of took it away and I thought, well, I see it as like metaphor, arguments um, and, and, and story. We kind of do that already, not to kind of ape um, the sort of things that, um, you know, some of the teachers I was alluding to earlier would say. But we have units that resemble let's say if it's a descriptive writing unit, let's say it's a travel writing unit, we're trying to push the importance of writing metaphorically and using personification and using these different things. And and I kind of, and, and similarly, we probably have like units that are, are rhetorical and we obviously have literary analysis and this kind of thing. Would it be fair to say, am I completely wrong uh, in thinking that perhaps if every year group, you know, year seven, year eight, year nine, looked at metaphor, argument, and and story every year, and saw, you know, grammar, context, and and pattern as things which could be respectively placed into those three boxes as and when, you know, we wanted to interleave things. Would that be um, a, a prudent way to use these different disciplinary lenses, or am I am I off? Well, it's not how I envisage it. So mm. it's not you, you know it's not that you're you're wrong and I'm right. It's just that's not how I think. So mm-hmm. I think like it. So as I said, they're boxes. On one level, they're boxes. So so they're only meaningful depending on what you put in the boxes. So you know in the you know, for example, in the metaphor box, we think about, you know, that basically it's like the prerequisite for understanding, from, from my perspective, the prerequisite to understanding metaphor is to have a vocabulary to talk about how metaphor is made. So um, I, I would teach students about the about tenor and vehicle and ground and how they, how they go together. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's something that a lot of English teachers don't know about. Lots do, you know, but many don't. And, and it isn't, I've found it isn't typical to to approach metaphor in that way. And then I'd sort of think, you know, the, there's two main strands, linguistic and literary metaphor. And so linguistic metaphors are sort of, you know, starting with the idea that, you know, words are often highly metaphorical if you look mm. at the etymologies of words that, you know, a brilliant example is the word, um, Roots, you know, you look at the roots of a word, and what do we to make sense of that? We're thinking about the roots of plants, and so you know that they the word is a metaphor, uh, and then you know, at another level down, you can start introducing students to systematize metaphors. The fact that we think we think in very clear metaphorical structures, so that we see, for instance, we see uh, medicine and 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 as a fight. So that's a very common metaphor for talking about medicine. So we we fight an illness, we have a bout of illness, mm. we you know we do all, all there's all of these things in there, and there's lots and lots of this. And then the idea of literary metaphors is is about sort of teasing out the difference between um, you know how how things how how the different aspects, the different tropes work. So you know what does metonymy do differently? To, to metaphor and what how does sim, symbolism handle things differently and and where does irony fit into that and so mm. so those are the things that I would put in the box that I call metaphor 
And then, but at another level, it's not just a box, it's also a frame. So it's like you're looking, your curriculum, let's say your travel writing curriculum, that's the, that's the thing you're looking at. And then looking at it through, it's like being able to take the metaphor frame and it's like really ornate and gilded and interesting. And it changes the way you see what's inside the frame. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you, you know, you can take like a great work of art, taking it out of its frame and just sort of, you know, blue tack it to the wall. It doesn't look as impressive and as interesting as if you look through a frame. And then you look for another frame. You look through it through one of the other frames that's available, and and the content changes again. So, so I think usefully, potentially, what you can do is you could look at something like your travel writing scheme of work and think. What do we want to cover? And one of the things that I've been working on since publishing the book is to try and find out, is to try and explore the idea that there might be orders of precedence in, in terms of these six boxes. Yeah. And that uh, uh, it might be useful for students to encounter something first before something later makes sense. So that's completely different in, in the way it works, to, to the way something like order of precedence works in a subject like mathematics, which is very, very tall and thin. It's like a Jenga tower, I've heard it described, that if you remove things from the bottom, the whole thing can't stand up and the stuff at the top becomes meaningless. And, and by contrast, knowledge in English is much more very, 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 very wide and very, very shallow. Um, and, and, and it certainly would be erroneous to claim that you have to look at metaphor before you look at story and you know so all of these things happen concurrently but I think there might well be or certainly I've tried to explore the extent to which there are orders of precedence within those boxes so like as I've given the example of metaphor for me I think the rest of metaphor doesn't make complete sense if you haven't given students the tools, you know, the, the, the tenor vehicle and ground as tools for exploring mm -hmm. how it works across different ideas. So that for me is like a prerequisite. Um, but, but, you know, nobody else thinks this, this is just what I reckon. I'm not aware <laughs> of anyone else has done any work around this area. So um, I'm, you know, if, if, if listeners are interested, uh, I'm very happy to send them a document where I've kind of outlined this and, and I'd be, I'd be delighted if people tried to break it. And uh, you know, or, or you know, just pointed out what they think I've missed, mm. uh, because you know, I, and I've asked quite a few people that question, and nobody yet has said, "Yeah, it's completely wrong," or "You haven't done something essential." But it's a matter of time <laughs> before somebody does, and and I'd prefer that they did it sooner rather than later. I think it's. I think it'll be quite hard to find someone who. Well, I don't know. Actually, I suppose it, it depends on the level of autonomy the person's got because it is such a shift from like the paradigm of what we're used to in terms of not only training, but I mean, we have come so far in terms of um, with regard to like preparing kids for like RGCSE and whatever sort of like A-level or, or, or whatever kind of like final exams they do in in high school that there, there is such a massive kind of trickle down effect into key stage three to the point where it is a bit soulless sometimes and a bit taxing with regard to what you're covering and everything feels a little bit GCSE light and what you're what the book is brilliantly doing is um suggesting such a massive paradigm shift in terms of the way 
that we see um, English as a subject. I think what coming back to the metaphor one, what's the, the most exciting thing? I think particularly for if you're working in uh, a school with multiple nationalities or multiple kind of cultural backgrounds and things like that, the metaphor one um, works on so many different levels because it's obviously not just English that uses metaphors as a means of communication. Some some languages, um, I mean, I can only speak for like I'm familiar with like Cantonese, like, sort of Mandarin, and this kind of thing. It's hugely metaphorical language. So if you've got like a student body that includes you know South Asian, Southeast Asian. West African kids, um, you know, whether they're first generation, second generation, whatever, it is a really nice opportunity to kind of um, reach out and, and, and ask them like how metaphor works in their language. Um, but I think, yeah, not, sorry, go on. I'm not a linguist, so I can't sort of speak to this with any authority, but, you know, as a, from a casual observation, I think language as a concept is inherently metaphorical. Mm. And, mm. and, you know, and I've read, I've read sort of, I've read around this, I've read, you know, read stuff by linguists that sort of support that as an idea. Um, and that was, you know, that, those first four things, the, the, the metaphor story arguments and pattern, it, the, where I started with those is I think they're primary ways of understanding and making sense of the world. They are, they are the ways with which we make meaning, not just in English, but in, in every way that we meet life it's just that they have a particular meaning uh, a discrete meaning in in a subject like english where they become not just the way we see the subject but the subject itself so they're both the content and the frame um, a lot of the time mm. um so lastly just kind of it's i'm sort of piggybacking yeah. off the back of um something which um you spoke about a minute ago um, if we do have kind of like a, this is called different things by different people, but the spiral curriculum um, uh, sort of model of, of the curriculum, how, how do you see these six boxes working in that framework? So if you've got key stage three, like year seven, eight, nine, um, is it is it silly to say that you, you cover all six things to a greater or lesser degree yeah. in year seven, exactly. eight, and nine, or exactly. how, how do how do you see how do you see that working? Well, so at one level, you know the 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 boxes and the content of the boxes uh, are like a checklist. So mm -hmm. so because I've tried to do this idea of thinking about orders of precedence, and because we're starting in year seven, you know I don't have earlier to go on. So so because year seven is the start point we absolutely ensure that the top layer is covered in year seven. And we ensure that by the time we get to the end of year nine, we've done the bottom layer everywhere. And, mm. uh, and that that's, that's, you know, slightly messy and, and asymmetric in places. But, you know, once we'd, once we'd sort of talked about those curricular experiences, the, the content, which which is up for debate, and it doesn't bother me if different different schools, different different people want to envisage a completely separate journey through um, the key stage. But I think it is reasonable to say, okay, whatever you've curated, are you teaching these fundamental concepts which make 
which make literature and language come alive and and make it something that you can that you can have ownership of. And if you're not, then uh, you can use this as a as a way to putting it in because I think they'll they're so broad as concepts that they'll they'll fit alongside any vehicle. Um, but they but they do need to be fitted and they need thinking through. So so that's that's a body that's a that's a piece of work that we've done at a sort of macro level and 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 that it's in the process of being brought to life at a at a sort of at a at, a, at the level of the the scheme of work and the and the lesson plan um, because mm. obviously that's where it lives and dies if it's not if it's not connecting with te- between teachers and students it's an irrelevance and so we have to you know the challenge is to do it in such a way as the kids go ah right okay that makes sense so for instance in year seven that idea of tenor vehicle and ground that's that's covered really heavily throughout the year uh, as a vital grounding so so even though we do other bits it we always come back to that so that they're you know, one of my sort of mantras is don't practice something until you can do it, carry on practicing until it's impossible not to do it. And, and what I, what I, what I'm ambitious for there is that the students who are, who are experiencing this curriculum begin to make this a sort of integral to their thinking that they can't conceive of not looking at, at language in that way. Yeah. Um, with uh, like another kind of like piece of advice that you've given with regards to curriculum is the fact that if you look at like the year eight curriculum or the, the year seven curriculum like you were mentioning just then, um, what would happen if you move something from term one into term two or even more drastically, what if I move something from year seven into year nine? Mm. You know, what 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 difference would that make? And if the, the co- coordinator or whoever can't explain why it wouldn't make sense then there is a problem there with curriculum progression how um because you're dealing with kind of like um concepts there that are already incredibly ambitious how are they doing how have you kind of factored that in in terms of the difference between difficulty or significance or level or whatever you want to call it between seven okay. to nine with with regard to any of these okay. six yeah, no that makes sense so one of the one of the um guiding ideas is in terms of that of the content the the texts the idea part of the idea there is that we wanted students to have a sense of what they're studying now um those writers would have would have had access to what they've studied before um. so if we're looking at, at, you know, in the links to legend in year seven, where we're looking at Arthurian legend and we're looking at Seguin and Beowulf, um, like there's like there's no doubt there's all sorts of textual evidence that the writer of Beowulf um, was uh, was aware of of the Odyssey and the Iliad. I mean, there's there's it's it's not it's not it's not up for debate. It's it's like mm. the case, and so it kind of make it's it's. I think it's really important to be able to say the text that you're reading the writer that you're studying they've read that they read they've read some of what you've read or you've read some of what they've read and you can see its influence you can see you know how writers are reaching out across time to take take each other's hand and pass the baton so if we kind of suddenly started moving things around and sort of decided you know let's put let's put you know some something in the wrong place then 
you lose a bit of the ability to do that. But we we also cheat wherever it kind of makes sense. So in year seven, where we're looking at, re- at the development of rhetoric and we look at bits of Aristotle and Cicero, um, we're cheating by putting Shakespeare's Julius Caesar in there because obviously that's a, an Elizabethan play. It doesn't make mm. sense chronologically, but the subject matter does. You know, it's set mm. in ancient Rome and Cicero is one of the characters in the play. So there's lots of mileage to be made of that. But we're also within that, we're also linking backwards and forwards across time to, to different examples of rhetoric. So we'd, we'd include things like, you know, not only Cicero's speeches, but also, you know, things like Satan in Paradise Lost, um, who's a you know, brilliant rhetorician, um, right up to, you know, people like, um, you know, like, uh, like, like, like people like Barack Obama talking about, about um, you know his his vision for America, people like Martin Luther King talking about his dream, you know, obviously, and sort of and showing how those things are coming from a common root. And so, you know, you can definitely, you know, we I I I've certainly got an argument for why everything is in our curriculum, why, where why it is sequenced in the way that it is, and what you would what you would um, forego were you to move anything. Uh, but it, I really have this as a sort of as a sort of almost as a checklist item when talking to curriculum leaders about their curriculum, because I think that often, you know, the 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 sequencing that exists is is either not there or it's very superficial. And so they'll you know, they'll say things like, well, we do this at the beginning of year seven because, you know, it makes the kids feel kind of like at home <laughs> and sort of, you know, like they're you know, it's yeah. not too. You know, it's like meets them where you know, and and I kind of get that, and I'm not against that as as a as a, a you know for a, and they'll say things like, well, you know, we've got a Shakespeare in year seven because we have a Shakespeare in every year of Key Stage Three, and it's like, okay, well, I get that, but like, you know, um, so we've got a Midsummer Night's Dream in year seven because it's like a bit more child friendly, it's a bit sort of, and it's like, well, is it? You know, <laughs> does that really make sense? Um, so, so I just think it's, it's to really sort of, it's not me saying anybody else who's wrong. Um, it's just saying if you're, if, if you get to the point with a curriculum model where it, it just wouldn't be impossible to move something because it's so well embedded where it is, then you're much closer to having, having it right. And if you can, if you're, if your curriculum is still at the stage where you can swap things around, then then you're probably missing some opportunities and there are there's work that you can do to improve the sequencing so it's you know it's not that big a deal but i think that you know one of the big reasons why you know why 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 the curriculum doesn't work in the way we want it to to is that children can can experience our curriculum and they can they can go through key stage 3 and it doesn't feel like they've made progress you know, it doesn't feel like they're any better at English than they were maybe at the beginning. And th- and that's on us, I think. Mm. Um, and I think one of the, you know, there are two big reasons for this, which is one of, you know, la- which is lack of specificity, allowing too many gaps between what we've thought of and what children experience. And, and, and some children can fill the gaps themselves, but others can't. And if we don't fill those gaps, they'll fall through them. And the other the other big problem is is that if sequencing is poor, then children aren't able to make sense of things at the point that we're teaching them because they haven't had what they might need 
in order to to get there and so so really the sequencing that matters is the these orders of precedence that i've kind of thought through in each of those disciplinary boxes so that's more important the 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 uh, you know the, those two things sit alongside each other and it and it then speaks to assessment because when i'm assessing students on on whether they're making progress in the curriculum i'm much more interested in have they understood the concepts than can they remember the stories you know i don't really want or need to assess their experiences the experiences are the experiences you know some bits of it might be so crucial that we really do want to you know make them a feature of assessment but others you know, just enjoy them or not. <laughs> I think um, that's um, as good a place as any to call it a day. That's a really rousing, fantastic last point there, David. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's it's been, I think, uh, not to embarrass you too much, but I think I bought the book a day after it came out. I bought it on Kindle so that I didn't have to wait for delivery and stuff like that. And it was, I don't know about many other English teachers, but it was like a book I'd been waiting, the type of book I'd been waiting for for a long time. And it's it's definitely one that has um, stayed with me the longest, probably, in terms of what I do in my day-to-day job. So uh, thank you very much for writing it. And thank you very much for giving up your free time to speak to me today. Thanks, Chris. It means a lot. Thank you.